Park Local citizens, welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Sadu, coming to you from Brooklyn. <laughs> yes, 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 I am still in the NYC area and having a great time being very, 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 very busy on my real estate projects, which is a great dovetail into my guest today because he is doing something very similar, not only on the business side, but also on the social side in his local or one of his locals. So let's get right to it. He is a software consultant turned real estate developer with his first project, which is a youth hostel in Kumasi, Ghana. Kojo North, welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello, hello. Good afternoon from my time zone. (laughs) Good afternoon. (laughs) All right. So let's get started. Let's jump right in. Where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? (laughs) You'd think they'd be quite easy questions to answer, especially where am I from? But that's been a part of my life's journey in terms of figuring that out. Born in Amsterdam, however, raised in London, throughout England, actually, as my parents moved around when I was quite young. But my ethnicity, so my parents were born and raised in Ghana, and that's where my grandparents and everyone before them. So it's been a journey for myself in terms of recognizing that I have a lot of European traits and mindsets. But that being said, I was raised in a Ghanaian home, and that is where my heart is. So over the last four years, my journey into Ghana has really began in terms of as an adult, and I'm really enjoying it. My father is from the Kumasi region. He's an Ashanti. My mother is from the Ewe tribe. You know, she's from the Volta. And for myself, it's figuring out where I belong between those two cultures, which are in themselves very unique. So you would call yourself local now in where? <laughs> Do I need to pick one? Oh, no, no, no. I guess all of them. Okay, so then let's get more specific. So currently you are in... Currently, I am in Amsterdam, my birth city. So do you have three passports? I have two passports. I I still need to get the last one, which is the British one. I'm eligible, but it seems to be quite a, a process. Since Britain left the European Union, it means the passport is significantly weaker to be honest. So I get around pretty well on a on a Dutch and, and Ghanaian passport. <laughs> mm, very true. Yeah. The whole Brexit thing really insane. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We can talk a little bit more about this later. But how has that impacted your work in Europe? It's impacted one of the projects I was involved in. So I had a very small exporting business where we used to bring luxury fashion items to the UK and distribute them across Europe. But due to Brexit, it means that there's no more VAT-free, no value-added tax-free importing and exporting of goods. So we've now got to pay a levy. And that's essentially the gross margin when you're paying 20 to 30% just on tax that was not there a year ago, two years ago. It becomes almost not valuable um, and viable to to operate in that manner. And our suppliers, vendors, rightfully so, don't discount because we've now got this excess cost. So that's been affected, but life goes on. Yeah, it does. Okay. So I've never had a guest from Amsterdam on the, like in <laughs> Amsterdam. So I want to kind of get a sense of what your local is like. So what is, where, what is your neighborhood? What is your area? I've been to Amsterdam a few times, but, but, but take us down your block or into your neighborhood. <laughs> like, where do you walk? Let's hear it. You know what? I, 
I, I love Amsterdam, albeit I was raised in London. I realized that I am very much an Amsterdam boy, an Amsterdammer, we, we call it here. In terms of how this place is set up, it's so friendly for the human mind. There's so much greenery. And of course, my comparison to all of this is London, but there's so much greenery here. And the way people commute on bicycles, it's insane at first, but then you get with it. And then when you do get with it, you realize it's amazing. It's so fun. It's so freeing to ride my bike everywhere. But where I live in particular is an island off Amsterdam that was recently built over the last 10 to 15 years. And it's just spectacular. There's so much nature here. There's water here. We've got a fake beach, a man-made beach. It almost gives you Dubai <laughs> vibes with, without all the special stuff. I don't want to misalign anybody's. Yeah. Without the, yeah, the, the Playland, Disneyland stuff. Yeah, it's like it's like real life living, not Disneyland. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, this is where I'm at. This is where I've chosen to set up my European base simply for the reasons I've just mentioned. And I think one last topic I will say on, on Amsterdam and why I'm here in particular as a black man in Europe, I think there's different experiences you have in different European cities. And I think in Amsterdam, in terms of the way we black people communicate with each other, in the way we interact with each other compared to London, I think it's much more healthy here. I think there's a lot of self-love that hasn't translated into into London that we get over here. And you see that in the news in terms of the black on black crime and the knife crime that happens in London that's ever growing. It isn't being met here in Amsterdam in as much rampancy. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Okay, so just what is the name of the island? Because I want to check this out. It's called Eiber. 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 Okay. That's I for India, J for Julia, Burr. B U R J. Oh, wait. Eiber. I J B R. I J B U R G. R G. Eiber. Eiber. So you speak Dutch, right? My Dutch isn't perfect, but we can get about. We can have a conversation. <laughs> if we start going philosophical and Nietzsche and all that, then we'll need to we need to flip the script. <laughs> okay, all right, all right, all right. So let's talk a little bit more about your your London then. So where in London did you grow up? I want to kind of get to my why the where, but first of all, let's talk about your London. Yeah, for sure. So the journey in England started in the north of England in a little town, a um, place called Sheffield, which is, is extremely northern as a young boy. And then my parents moved to London and I, of course, moved with them. And that was West London. So I've always been based in and around West London, more specifically Shepherd's Bush, um, which is quite popular because it's close to Notting Hill, which every year there's the Notting Hill Carnival, which is which is pretty huge. So that's where I grew up. I'm familiar with both Sheffield. I've never been, but I, I know quite a few people that are familiar with that. And then also Shepherd's Bush, which is not far from my family's places. Wow. We've got some similarities. You said mentioned Tema. Now it's <laughs> Yeah. <Bush>. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you mentioned your craft or did you? I did not. So what is your craft? Define craft for me. The thing that you do that is productive for you. So, no, I mean, when I think of craft, it is how I am my best self, right? Yeah. So how do I find myself, and I say productively because professionally, you kind of link it to your professional self, but as a creative, 
I like to say craft. So what, how do you find yourself the most? Well, I'll, what is your craft? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so my craft has, has evolved, and, you know, as you stated in, in my bio from consulting software companies in terms of scaling and becoming more meaningful in whatever their products solve, bringing that to market and ultimately creating a brand and an identity and a strategy behind that. And that has related to me learning a few skills, such as problem solving. And when I touched Ghana, I realized, hey, there's a problem with student accommodation and how can I fill that gap? So for me, the craft has always been that underlining skill of, of problem solving, of understanding different pain points and being able to articulate how a specific solution can help eliminate that pain you know so for me that craft is, is problem solving it's conversation uh, and sometimes negotiation okay problem solve we'll take it we need a lot of <laughs> i mean i'm an engineer so problem solving is a big part of who i am as well so i can always appreciate when folks are really you know committed to that path and and so it has taken you from europe to ghana not just because of your your parentage but i guess part of that as well so so then let's move into why the where so how did you come to be living working and playing where you currently live so we didn't really talk about how you got back to amsterdam so tell us about that and then also enter ghana <laughs> cool so yeah it's definitely a convoluted story so 4 years ago the journey of ghana began so i was living um, in Amsterdam, I'd left London um, for the reasons I spoke about. I just didn't feel like London fit me anymore, albeit it's where I grew up. I realized that there's somewhere else I think I could be that would make me a little more free in the mind. So I chose Amsterdam, which I had some familiarity with. And that journey was great. Things were well in terms of what I was doing personally, socially. Um, and corporately as well. But I always had that burning feeling in the back of my mind, which was, well, Ghana is the place your parents are from and your grandparents, but you've only been there once or twice in your life as a child. And that wasn't even your option. Your parents took you on, on summer holiday. So that journey began four years ago where I thought to myself, let me just see what's there. Let me just see who's there. Let me just see what's there. Because we get, I understand, quite a tainted view of anywhere if you're just learning through social media or through the stories of others. So I went there without any actual ideas of what to do and what it would be like. I, I actually really remember organizing myself, getting my passport, my visas, my vaccination jabs that I needed etc. And realizing that I had forgotten to book accommodation as I didn't have anywhere to stay. So I was on the train on my way to the airport realizing, okay, this is great. And that's when I remembered, wait, what do I do the moment I actually arrive at Kotoka Airport? Because there were so many things I had to think about just to get myself there, as you know. And that's when I went on to Airbnb and I booked myself an apartment in Osu, which I didn't know where that was at the time. I just knew that was a place in Accra and I had very limited options as I needed a place on that night. And I just remembered the feel, feeling of fear when I arrived in Accra, which was, okay, now I need to get a taxi to this random place called Osu. I've never heard of it, not knowing actually, it's probably one of the safest regions in Accra, but I didn't know that, right? And it was pitch dark and I got to where I got to and, you know, the person on the gate opened the gate 
and I just slept. And I thought, if, if if I'm in an unsafe area, if anything happens to me, it is what it is. But here I am. And and that was my my journey into Ghana without any conversation really with anybody, without any help. I just decided to do it. And here I am today. <laughs> wow. Okay. That's very interesting. So, I mean, I as well had gone to Ghana as a child and then had, hadn't gone again until I was in graduate school. So it was a very different place. And then what I remembered, obviously, but that you said, you're, so your parents don't have a base there. Is that what you're saying? Because, you know, every time I'd go back, it's family houses. So we stayed, you know, I stayed with my cousin or this, and then now we obviously have, you know, expanded and have our own properties, et cetera, et cetera. So how, how was that? I mean, in terms of how you understood Ghana growing up and through your parents and how, you know, let most people land and see family. So how, how was that, that you were just kind of solo and, and not with family? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think partly it's just down to my own being and the way I am, which is quite an independent person. But another half of that is when my parents left Ghana, a line was drawn between the family that they had still there and those that left. So when I was brought into the picture, when I was born, that line was already in the sand. So those that were already in Ghana, I did not have any relationship with. And the setup for my family was, you know, leaving Ghana without anything and working really hard, but at low income jobs and not being able to accrue and not being able to to really build back at home. They were sending money back home to set certain family members, but that was never to build property or, and you know, and, and with the generation that came and that move into Europe or into America, et cetera, just get, I don't want to say trapped, but they get ingrained into the system and into the society. And it's hard to raise children on, you know, it's very difficult to raise children on a low income job. And so, yeah, me moving back to Ghana was very much me doing it by myself, for myself, with myself. And that's just what it was. So growing up at home, did you eat Ghanaian food? Like, you know, because it sounds like you may have had a Ghanaian community when you moved, but Sheffield is obviously not many Ghanaians. And so how was your exposure to Ghanaian culture while you were living in Europe growing up? Well, it certainly increased when, when we moved to London, that's for sure. As you mentioned, up north in England, it's um, it's it's a very non-Ghanaian area. Um, there's not many Africans really in such a place. So when I moved to London, I was I was around 13 years old. And that's when I started to make Ghanaian friends outside of the household, outside of church communities, etc. And that for me was very eye-opening in terms of, okay, this is how this is how we are, you know, this is the banter. These are the jokes that we tell. These are the experiences that we have outside of what my parents were able to provide. But they also are a different generation. So what I can relate to them with is very different than what I could relate with my Ghanaian friends with outside of the house. But when it came to food and music, I, I shied away from it, to be honest. I wasn't the biggest fan of banku and fufu and wache and konchomre, all these dishes. These are items I've begun to love uh, over the last three, four years. And maybe we'll get to the restaurant in a moment and uh, a cookbook that I'm making to rectify maybe some of the disdain <laughs> that I had for, for Ghana in cuisine growing up. But I think it's just a matter of, you know, you go to English school and you get English dinners and that's how you're brought up. And then 
that's what becomes your 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 norm and um not really understanding now why at home i'm eating with my hands when if i'm at school i'll get into trouble for doing so and it, it's these sorts of cultural uh imbalances i think that are sometimes hard to navigate as a, a child of you know immigrants living you know with many cultures no, it makes sense. I get it. Okay, so let's go back to your landing in Ghana in Osu. So that was your first trip. So tell us how this first trip morphed into you deciding to really like be in Ghana and invest and relocate. Well, I had made the decision already that I'm going to do this thing called Project Experiment Ghana. I'm it's I'm calling it an experiment and I'm going to go to Ghana with the intention to figure out if me being there would make me a happier person. Not that I was sad, but could I be happier? And the outcome of that would be either no, I won't be, and I'll come back to Europe or anywhere else. But it will eliminate that thought in the back of my mind, which is, hey, there's this country called Ghana, and that's where you belong, because I would have gone through that experiment process. Or it would have been, yes, Ghana is where you are happier. And well, great, here I am. So that was the philosophy that I had going in. It was a one-way ticket because I did not know when I would return and I didn't want to give myself a fixed timeline. And I took it day by day, started to build certain friendships and started to build people that I knew I could speak with and ask questions to. And ever so slowly, I, I saw myself becoming more ingrained into certain ecosystems specifically in Accra. I hadn't delved into Kumasi yet at this point or the Volta region, started with the capital. And yeah, it was a very slow process, but it was interesting to say the least. It was scary sometimes. It was lonely many times, but it was it was what I knew I needed to do. And so you first crash course Accra and then properties. So you're a software guy. You knew you were doing this experiment. So did you know that you wanted to come and build or you were just kind of figuring out what kind of business opportunities could be available to you? Yeah, the latter. So for me, and I think for many people that come from a different environment and then come to somewhere new, it's so easy to start to compare and contrast with what you know from back home, in my case, Europe, to what is the reality here. So I could identify a lot of things that I felt there could have been more of an effective solution, you know, that could be implemented. So to give a small example, I worked a lot in Europe as a waiter. So I probably had over 15 different jobs in 15 different restaurants, hotels as a waiter. So I sort of knew that job quite well. When I went to Ghana and I realized that people were taking orders on pen and paper, then going to the back of house, speaking to the chef, discussing what the order is, then coming back to my table. And it seemed to be quite an archaic process, but I know that there's something called the point of sale system. I know that in certain parts of the world, one may be able to input an order in a system that then gets transferred over to the chef, gets printed out, and there's a real streamlined process. So this was, for example, something that I felt, okay, that could be interesting. Could I start to import POS systems from, let's say, China, where I know they get manufactured, to a place like Ghana, and start to speak to specific restaurant owners. So I had that level of thinking about nearly everything. And I just couldn't help myself because I think it comes from that problem solving mindset where I'm wondering what can I bring that I know works somewhere else to somewhere else and who could it benefit and how could it benefit? So I started to have that sort of mindset just throughout journeys. And when I went to Kumasi, because originally that's where 
my father's from. So I thought, okay, that's, you know, a part of the journey of seeing how this region is. I came across the problem of student accommodation in the sense of there are far too many students in certain areas that don't have anywhere to stay. And that's a huge problem. And that's a problem that's ever growing as the universities become more popular, specifically KNUSD in Kumasi becomes more internationalized. This is a real pain. And me being a student at some point in my life, I know how that feels. So I thought, okay, this to me feels like a meaningful problem that I want to become a part of. As well as I recognize the business model would be more manageable. Students come, they pay for an academic year in full, and students often like to manage their own problems, handle their own solutions. So it isn't as, let's say, invasive as building an Airbnb where you've got transient guests coming every other week who expect also a certain standard of service coming from a certain part of the world. So all in all, the student accommodation project made the most sense with what I had to offer and my ability. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. And just for listeners so that you are kind of aware. So Kumase is uh, the capital of the Ashanti region. It is, it's, I want to say it's centralish, centralish Ghana. And the university is the Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology. So it's kind of our, our big tech university where most of the great tech minds are and are from. And as Kojo points out, there are more and more students every year. You know, it's a growing institution. And so I think definitely the idea of a hostel because what we do and kind of don't have is a dorm dormitory system like you would find in the West. And so meaning that there's food service and all those things. So students come and they do become kind of their own independent boarding board. It's like a boarding house situation. Right. And so, so you see that as a problem. You find a solution. So how quickly have you been able to solve for that solution? Because I I think you're already in operation. So tell us now about how that process actually went. Once you've identified this this problem that you wanted to solve, how what was that process like? Acquiring the land, financing, all those things. How's it been? And let me not give myself too much credit. Within that area, there are already hostels, you know, in operation. I think for myself, it was how can I build something that is a little different and I'll get into that in a bit more detail. So again, my own independence teaches me to ask questions and speak to people. So whenever I was in Kumasi, I just start speaking to people and typically people that look a bit more like me, they're a little bit more young and they mostly happen to be students because it's a student field area, especially around the tech campus. So I just started to speak about how they live, what is the lifestyle, what do they do? What are their plans post-graduation, you know, after national service and, and even learning about that concept of national service and such things like that. And that's when I realized, OK, accommodation is a problem because it's something they keep speaking about. But more specifically, the type of accommodation that is available and, you know, the laws of economy is simply that if there is too much supply, then demand is going to be met. And if there's too much demand, supply isn't going to be met. And I realized that a lot of the landlords and the owners were taking advantage of that because there was too much demand and not enough supply of rooms. And therefore, they were cramping students in spaces that really should be for two or three students, had five students sleeping in. And that meant communal areas would also be really full. It meant that water pressure sometimes wasn't even available hostels that were advertising that they have generators because of course we know in Ghana sometimes electricity 
goes down, they would never turn on their generators. So sometimes students couldn't charge their laptops ahead of uh, exam times. And I was just learning all these different things. And, and it goes on and on and on. And this was, for me, just curiosity. There was no intention to join the landlord, let's say, ecosystem and begin that journey of, of, of creating a hostel. I'm just genuinely curious and I'm just genuinely asking these questions because I'm just trying to understand to be more comfortable within myself. And that's when I did realize, okay, there is an opportunity here for me to build something that already exists. There's already student accommodation in hostels in the area, but how can I do these things a little bit differently? And knowing, of course, that it is a technical university and there are people from computer science, software backgrounds that I can relate to understanding also that there's an ecosystem in Europe of startup businesses in the tech field that require a lot of tech talent, but it's very expensive for a European-based business to hire domestically. Okay, well, how can I help fill that gap in terms of can I allow these Ghanaian tech students to work remotely and add value to these European businesses? So what if I open up a hostel and also create a communal office space where my tenants are now working remotely for European businesses to give them either experience or just some good salaries? And then I thought to myself, well, what's the next problem here is that there's not really enough access to affordable, healthy meals. A lot of students, including myself, we don't know how to cook. Let's just be honest. So we're simply purchasing food where we can. And if you've got a limited budget, it's probably going to be fast food. So that's when I identified, okay, well, the next step is how can I offer my tenants affordable and healthy meals? Well, what I can do is start building a restaurant and, and walk on that journey. So the restaurant is an operation in terms of how I'm currently building it. But I want it to become much greater than what it is. I really want it to become a place where students can sit inside, they can dine, they can be comfortable. There's going to be social events and maybe bring some of that aqua magic into Kumasi, where Kumasi can now start to be looked at. A serious place where people can invest time, money, and not just during Christmas, everybody goes into Accra, which is already a little bit over over densely populated and it's very expensive as well. So that was that was the journey into that. Okay, wow. Okay, so you are a software consultant and then you now are a real estate developer, which is not quite too much of a big leap because we're all solving problems. But how the business of actually deciding and, and implementing this, how did you, you know, put that together? Financing all of those things. How did you be how were you able to start that business and then even grow it in a short amount of time? So when did you officially open the hostel? And, you know, kind of give us a timeline of those things. So the model has been extremely simple, thankfully, because there's a limited amount of cash. So as I built a room, as I built a floor, I filled it out. And that was me also taking advantage of the situation, given that there is simply not enough rooms. And for some students, they will not be able to start their academic journey because they have nowhere to stay so bad that certain and, and maybe you'd, you'd call them smart but certain locals are using their own homes 
as student accommodation. So they call them homelets, you know, a home hostel. But this is not really the environment for a student to comfortably sleep, work, etc. So as soon as I started building I and the relationships I made with the people that I was asking questions to, there was already a demand that I had. So I was quite gracefully lucky that as soon as I built a room that had a bed, someone would be willing to take it. So I, I just went room from room from room. So the first, the ground floor was built with 14 rooms. And, and again, this is where I really differed. I did not maximize the amount of students I could put into that space. And with 14 rooms, I could probably put 40 students in there, but I had no more than two in a room in a space that could probably take four or five in a room. So word of mouth is obviously a really big way of marketing in a region like that. So things got around. So I always had enough people that would be very comfortable to stay in the hostel because of the area of where it was, which is 12 minutes by Trotro to get to Kane UST. So it's in a great area in terms of proximity to the university. And also it allowed a lot of comfort just in the way of, hey, it's still a construction site, but you're not sharing a room with so many other people. And actually, if you turn on your shower, water will come. And if you have light off you can just tell the hostel manager that i've put in place to turn on the generator and it will be turned on and i won't make you pay for fuel so it's these little things that i was doing that i think was differentiating myself and that allowed me to very very slowly year after year build new floors build new rooms and at the moment it's three floors 96 students in the property there's load for two more floors to be built over the next few years but now the focus is on the restaurant business so yeah, I'm just one person. So taking a pause on, on building uh, additional floors. Yeah, yeah. So being in real estate in Ghana, <laughs> <laughs> it's a cash business. So why are you laughing? <laughs> oh, it's just I'm just so impressed that you have been able to from your first time coming four years ago to now and like truly being ingrained in that space because dealing with the trades people and all of that. I'm, I'm renovating a home in Ghana now. I mean, I manage other ones, but it hasn't changed. <laughs> 10, 15, 20 years, it hasn't changed. So how was, describe your experience working with your construction team and, and getting them on board and managing them to produce what you wanted them to produce and not what they want to produce. I'm not sure they've produced exactly what I wanted them to produce. To be <laughs> There's the answer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a lot of weight was lost. Uh, and, I, and I mean this literally, it was tough. It was really tough. There were honestly days that I wasn't eating well. I wasn't sleeping well. And, you know, I had to take a look in the mirror and say, hey, you're fighting the system a bit too much. You know, I come with certain expectations and certain norms and values that I'm trying to to bring on and force on to an area that's maybe not had those types of expectations, nor norms or values. And it was tough. It, a lot of learning processes. So, for example, I, I took on a contractor initially that um, developed the blueprint with the architect and I could identify that there were certain anomalies that I just wasn't understanding between what the plans are and how many materials were needed in terms of cement for example and the price of cement in regards to different grades of cement and it was just really messy you know iron rods that weren't on site but that were bought and 
you know, people taking materials that weren't being used. And it was really amazing because when I was on site, everything runs quite smoothly and there's always excess. When I'm not on site, there's phone calls about we need more money for more pain or for more this and for more that. So, you know, it, it was painful and there was a lot of building and breaking and rebuilding because, for example, I would take a plumber who would be very qualified. They'd show me the houses that they'd built. Me also having a level of ignorance and not doing this before, not understanding there is a difference between residential plumbing and commercial plumbing. You know, if it's a house, you might need tubes that are a certain diameter because there might only be at most three or four people taking a shower at once. If there's 20 students, you're going to need to purchase your supplies from a completely different vendor. And, and these were the things that I had to learn through trial and error. And yeah, it was tough and it wasn't easy and it's still not easy. But I think you just become, or at least for me, I've just become more understanding of where other people are coming from and why they are doing what they're doing and being able to understand and mitigate and micromanage. I think that was a big, a big learning for myself. I come from a place where I think micromanaging is kind of looked down upon. It's not a very socially acceptable way of managing employees or staff in Europe, for sure. But when you come to Ghana with that same mindset, which I did was, OK, I want my people to be autonomous. I want my contractors to be independent. I'm going to be a source of information if they need me. And I'll stay hands off because I don't want to disrespect their own intelligence and experience. And a lot of these people are much older than I am. But that was not the right approach to take. and actually. It goes deeper than if I don't micromanage you, they may feel that I'm not serious about this work and do whatever. And so I was recognizing that my thought processes and my philosophies, albeit perhaps with good intentions, was having negative effects, not just to myself, but to the people on the site. Because ultimately, when certain presidences were built where people thought they could steal or they could take or they could do what they want, I had to let them go. And I had to bring new people on. But if I had managed them correctly, I may not have created an environment where they would have behaved in that way, which meant they could have stayed on my site and they could have kept earning money for their family. So I take total ownership, even of people that I've needed to let go. And that's come to me applying the wrong style of management or leadership with those people. So it's, it's an ever-growing journey and I'm still learning, but it's getting more effective. It's getting more optimized and and yeah, I think for me, the retention rate is what I'm really happy about in terms of how long I keep a certain employee, if it's someone that's doing security or a night porter or a builder or a contractor, I'm building these relationships now. And, and that makes me feel like I'm making progress. Nice. I think you made a great point is that to our detriment to some extent, the way of business in you know the trades is micromanagement. Like you truly do have to be there. Like people are asking me, oh, what's going on with your projects when since you've been in the US? Nothing. Yes. <laughs> Nothing. Pause. <laughs> I close the site and when I get back, we go back, you know, that kind of thing. And that's not to say, I mean, so it's interesting because I don't have to be here at every step in the U.S. when I'm managing a project, particularly bigger ones, partially because there are other me's that are part of the project on, on different sides. But yeah, it is a, a learning experience to take apart your Western mindset and then reapply it to a place that, you know, you wish were more comparable but you take it as it is. So I want to ask you about Glocal Speak. 
since you've spent a little bit of time in Kumasi, <laughs> Accra, and you know, you also have this European experience, we like to hear what you hear. So I'm asking you to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you have come to value it as a local speak. <laughs> I really like that question. Uh, I truly do. I just want to touch on something you said just now about the fact that when you are not in Ghana, you kind of pause your projects. And that also, I think to me, the underpinning skill there is patience. And that was something I really had to learn. And I just thought it was important for me to emphasize because I've always considered myself a patient person. I don't suffer from road rage. I'm not mad. And I thought that was enough to, to go to Ghana and build and to do the things that I want to do. But I realized there's a new level of patience that I didn't even understand existed, which is, no, you don't road rage. That's great. But can you laugh when something goes wrong? And that's something I'd not learned yet, that I actually need to find the humor or the enjoyment or the lesson in when something is not going my way and be patient. And, and that's, that's the true meaning now for me. That's what it means to be a patient person. It means that I enjoy it when things aren't going the way I would like them to go. And now I take huge gratification that my projects are on pause because I realize, hey, it might not mean that I'm going to be as effective. It might not mean that I'm going to build in my timeline, but it means nothing's going wrong. That's great, you know? So <laughs> I just... I love it. Yeah, that's a great insight. I, I just wanted to touch on that. I just I just wanted to touch on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. So, globally speaking? Yes. <laughs> I've, I've learned so much, you know. So my chi, uh, which is the language of, of the Ashantis, which is, of course, the biggest tribe, so commonly known as the main language in Ghana, is horrible. <laughs> Absolutely horrible and... This, I don't put on my parents for a long time. I did, but I put this on the primary school teachers who I honestly think brainwashed my parents when I was a child. So because I moved from Amsterdam to England, my English wasn't great growing up because I spoke Dutch. And what my primary school teachers advised my parents was don't speak your African language to your children, but speak to them only in English so that we don't hold them back in school. And, you know, to my parents who did not know any better, they thought that was great advice. But I found that to be, and I find that to be completely inappropriate and, and actually borderline racism, because I know for a fact that when a racism then, straight, because when an Italian child moves to England, you know, the white parents and the white teachers won't say to each other, well, don't teach your child Italian or don't teach a child French or Portuguese. But when it's us Africans, we come to, to Europe or in this case to, to England, we are told, our parents are told, don't teach your child the African dialect. And, you know, that has had such a negative impact to me as a person not just in what I'm doing now, but in my identity and who I think I am. And it's led to a level of confusion that, you know, is, is unacceptable. And I'll suffer from it today, but it's also now something that I have remedied and I'm working on and I have certain chi classes and I've got certain um, 
online platforms and books that I utilize, but you know, it, it isn't the same. And I probably would have had a lot less headaches had I been fluent in Qi growing up and certainly on the site, but such is life. Yeah, yeah. We all I mean we all have our certain paths that we have to be on and the obstacles that they're there that make us who we are. So Okay, so it doesn't have to be a, a local language. It can be whatever you hear that's just kind of is meaningful. So, and it could even be Dutch. So, <laughs> what? <laughs> you're on many streets. So, tell us something that you hear that you like. Well, a funny saying that that I like, um, and I think it's got so many different translations in, in different languages. But this actually, someone told me in Ghana. Because one thing about me is I, I love preparing for things. I love creating plans. And he said, you cannot prepare. It is a proverb. He said, you cannot prepare for the Hamilton season by drinking too much water. And that made a lot of sense to me because, it, you know, it's so true. And I think, again, sometimes with the European or Western mindset, it's we can plan. We're going to forecast. We're going to have a contingency plan in case the main plan doesn't go. But one thing that I really enjoyed in, in Ghana and what I recognized is this go-getter mentality from the ex-seller down to, you know, the next business tycoon. It's we've got an idea. Let's, in not in their words, but in my words, let's bring it to market. In their words, let's go make money. Let's see what we can do. Let's see if we can chop. And that was very inspirational to me. So nobody can prepare for the Hamatan by drinking plenty of water. And that's made me so much bolder even in the things I do in Europe, in the companies that I invest in or the projects I'm involved with, it's let's not talk too much. Let's not plan too much. Let's just bring it to market and let's see what happens. If it resonates, it does. And if there's problems, let's fix them in public. We don't need to be perfect in public. We can be imperfect and we can figure it out as we go along. Yeah, that's a great one. I like that one. <laughs> Preparation is great, but it's, it can't always be 100%. So, yeah, I like it. I talk a lot about the Hamilton, by the way, when I'm in Ghana there. It's tough. It's tough for me. <laughs> I wish I wish I did have a solution of drinking plenty of water and doing something for the dust in my eyes, but no. <laughs> it's just tough. <laughs> it is. It is. It certainly humbles us, right? <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed, indeed. Okay, so we've talked about local speak. And so I want to get a little bit more of an understanding of how you are visualizing and seeing the restaurant come to fruition and then what what is you know what is your expansion plan in ghana like what's what's the new and next for you i would like to transform the way students are treated in ghana i completely understand that students have a very small political power. I understand financially they are not in a great position, but we also need to recognize that, especially in a place like Ghana, the education of the youth, I think is going to be a strong tool for emancipation and for our growth. And at the moment, I don't believe that students in Ghana, and this is across West Africa and maybe even Africa, but I'll speak to a region that I know, I don't believe students are given a fair shake to begin life. Uh, I believe they're being misled in a lot of ways by institutions that convince them to study certain degrees that ultimately when they come out of this, they don't have any real life experience, any practical experiences. And therefore, it's almost as if the investment they made with their time 
And in a lot of cases, the final amount of money their parents have to study for years upon years is almost pointless because when they graduate, they now become a laborer on a site or to become an Uber driver or a bolt driver. And it's, well, what is it for if not to educate the youth so that they can use that knowledge to empower us either in manufacturing or in agriculture or in building and actual practical tools to enable them to be able to create a better space. So for me, my way of doing that is, well, let's begin with the hostel, as I mentioned, let's begin at the restaurant and let's begin at the workspace that I've got in the hostel to be able to just push these students to be the best that they can be. And with the working opportunities remotely, make a bit of money so that they don't need to take positions or lose positions due to financial reasons. But that be the springboard. Ultimately, I look at companies like Remotely, which is an Accra-based outsourcing company that has built a business on giving Ghanaian graduates jobs in European, American, Western markets remotely. And they're getting paid proper salaries. And I say proper, I mean outside of what the national income is in Ghana, which is not enough in this ever-growing climate. You know, inflation is growing. It's not acceptable. You know, young professionals who are now becoming the largest demographic in Ghana in terms of between the age of 18 to 35, it's the largest growing demographic, are the future of the country. So my goal is to be able to enable those people, that demographic to to be the best that they can, because I think and I believe that will lead to Ghana being the best that it that it can. I love that because I think you've hit it square on the nose that our institutions, particularly our higher education institutions, for the most part, are not serving the the youth that are coming through. As you said, they're studying subjects they're not interested in because of the, the nature of I want to say a colonial education system that does not speak to what our African needs are. And to your point, I mean, I have nieces and nephews who would have loved to have been doctors or loved to be in lawyers. But what they got in school was, oh, you can study some social science. Right. And. Sure, that's great, but let's look at our society and look at our culture and look at, you know, where where will they actually be employed? And so we don't have this, you know, prolific, you know, sector of creatives or this big, you know, creative marketing space. So these children, young people, not children, these young people come out and as you said, they're unemployed, they're underemployed, they're just kind of out there. And then you wonder why we have certain crime statistics that happen, you know, there's all this untapped brain power that is just kind of leaking and seeping and, and not being directed in a in a way that's very helpful. So I appreciate that. And I wish you all the best with that. And I think it's a good uh, segue into my uh, mindset hack question. So what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? This is one that you practice, one that you know of, or one that you can imagine. <laughs> one that I can imagine. It, do it now. Do, do it, it now. now. Okay. Do okay. it now. If it's a thought that you've got, write it down so you don't forget. Do it now. If it's a task that you need to execute on, do it now. If it's a tough conversation you need to have with someone, do it now. And for me, that's become a source of peace because I don't have these clouds of activities that, you know, shed this darkness and this shade over myself, I feel very free in the mind because I know that I have nothing to do in the sense of I don't have all these 
tasks and activities on the back of my mind and it helps a lot with being more productive and it eliminates procrastination as well just by doing it now and Ghana helped me with that mindset you know it, it certainly did because I would have these great schedules where I'll do this on Tuesday and I'll do that on Thursday and I'll write these plans down and I'll put in a break here and there and that's all good and well but do it now why can't I do it now and if not do it all now start now start now start today start this minute even in seeing your email that you sent across about what you do in your podcast I saw it come in and I thought to myself okay I'll send a response no I won't I'll do it now I won't send a response I'll do it now and sometimes the early bird does catch the worm so there is you know some level of perhaps doing it now might influence what the outcome of it will be you know make mistakes quick and make them early so you can learn from them yeah yeah i like that <laughs> and thank you for doing it now <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right kojo we talked about all this business 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 that is you but let's talk about the kojo that is not the software developer which we didn't really talk about how you got to that <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure it's a typical Ghanaian family, go learn something science kind of story. <laughs> is it? it? It actually isn't. No, it, it actually isn't. It, it's, it's pretty interesting. So I, I worked a job and again, it comes back to that curiosity. I was in this job and there was somebody that was really high performant. And I was just asking her a bunch of questions. How do you do what you do? What time do you wake up? When do you go to sleep? Do you take breaks? What do you eat for lunch? And I was just bombarding her. I did not know that her partner, I didn't know she had a partner, was the vice president of a software company that had just started. And that was my introduction. So when she left that company, she spoke to her partner and said, hey, you know, there's this kid that's just been bombarding me with questions, but I think he's got a pretty good mindset. Do you want to interview him? I was completely unqualified to be interviewed. I did not fit the job specification or persona. I did not have a software background, nor an engineering one. I got that opportunity purely through charisma and being inquisitive. And of course, since that journey, I've become qualified and I now am who I said I was then, but that was how I got into that opportunity. So it was purely out of just asking questions and, and stepping up. Nice. That's another do it now kind of thing. So that's part of your yes. ethic in a lot of ways. Okay. All right. <laughs> so you've given us a little bit about who you are when you're not kind of in work mode. But yeah, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you enjoy doing. I like to ask, are you a reader, a watcher or a listener? And what are some of your favorite reads, watches or listens? I'm definitely a watcher, but it's it's not per se video. It, it's pictures. I, I love art and paintings. And um, on my Instagram, that's every day what I post. I create African art. I post that. And for me, I learn so much from looking at these art pieces. And I just relate them to myself or to the people within my life. And I gain so much knowledge from the lessons that we get taught from looking at art. And I think art is a great tool for education. So not a not a reader per se. I, I read a lot in work and contracts and all that. But in terms of in my personal time, I, I love to look at art. It's a, it's a big part of me. That's me as well. And so I'm curious about any artists that you follow. And also, if you're posting on your Instagram, what is your Instagram? How can we follow you? <laughs> it's at Kojo North. 
<laughs> All right. So that's your Instagram. That's right. And some of the artists that you've come to love, can you name a few or there's just too many? <laughs> there's a lot. There's a big one that, you know, he was actually a photographer, but I'll just shout him out. Um, very famous. He died during COVID, unfortunately, Bob Pixel. You can find his page still on Instagram at Bob Pixel. Amazing. He is able to showcase and illustrate essays and books worth in a single photo. So I want to start with Bob Pixel. But in terms of traditional art uh, and paintings, Pajo, uh, who's pretty popular, pretty famous, I find him to be very incredible and his work is uh, very realistic. So I'm not a huge fan of abstract. Uh, my brain is not complex enough for it. I like my alter realism. Um, and he's able to, to depict some really interesting thoughts. There's a, a woman called Zora Opoku. She's, um, you know her? Yep, she's great. I mean, her work speaks for itself. I think it's a little bit more towards abstract, but it's, for me, realistic enough to kind of understand what it's about. Yeah, th those are two Those are two that I, I'm certainly a big fan of. Okay, nice, nice, nice. I will put them in the show notes, folks. Remember, our show notes are always very rich. You can check them out. Of note, I was at the Dakar Biennale last year and she was there. I know her from Ghana, actually. So you know her personally? Yeah. yeah oh, okay, yeah. understood. I took a capoeira class. Okay. <laughs> yeah, How did that go? yeah. Oh, years and years and years ago. This was, I mean, I think... Yeah, it was more than 10 years ago that they were offering a capoeira class. That's how we initially met. And then just through the years, just kind of... Are you still practicing? Is that what you'll be doing after this call? No, actually, you know what? It's I'm glad that I took that course because I didn't... Capoeira was not for me. No? I just didn't... Yeah, I just didn't feel the dance of it, right? Mm. So... If I could have felt the dance of it, I felt too much. It was. It just felt too much. Too much spinning. Too much battle training, okay. which I would, which would be fine. But the dance of it, you know, the flow of it, I just wasn't there yet. And I that that could have been learning, but it just, I just, it didn't resonate with me. But yes. So last year at the Dakar Biennale, uh, Zora was one of the finalists or one of the felt. She was one of the fellows at the Black Rock Senegal. And that's Kande Wiley's um, project where he does, you know, invites a bunch of artists to do um, residencies in Senegal. And so that's the last time I saw her. But yeah, she's great. She's awesome. Good choices. Well, next time you speak with her, let, let her know um, she's got a big fan in, in Kojo. I will. <laughs> I will. I will. Indeed. So you're a, you're a watcher of art. Absolutely. Not so much books and I guess not so much a listener. No, uh, I play the piano. I'm a pianist. It's uh, again, it's one, one of the hustles through university in the Western white world. They love a black man in a suit that plays the piano. So uh, that was. A <laughs> so are you a classical pianist? Is that it? I play contemporary. I'm not the biggest fan of classical. Okay. It's a bit slow and a bit boring. You know, I was low-key playing R&B renditions of certain songs. They didn't know any better. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm a pianist, so I, I love acoustic music. Very recently, I was just at a Ludovico Enialdi, uh, who's an Italian pianist uh, and composer. So, you know, it's it's a big, big passion of mine. Um, and that certainly will be translated into the restaurant. I was going to ask, like, how are you integrating, yeah, live music or any of that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so there's a organization in Accra called Accra Art Week. Um, they can also be found on Instagram. Together, we're going to exhibit paintings in the restaurant and ultimately have it as a gallery. 
um, in a way, because it will rotate the art that will be, you know, within the restaurant and maybe even in the hostel. Um, yeah. And bring in some of those flavors, you know, to Kumasi as well, because um, as we know, there's a lot of investment coming into that area with the airport and the infrastructure that they're building. And yeah, I feel like I'm in a great position to try and create certain spaces that aren't there just yet. Nice. I like that. And so before we go, tell us what is the name of the restaurant so that folks can come and, and get some grub. Absolutely. So it's all under the name of Resurrection. Resurrection. Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which, and I spoke about this with my mother, and it almost feels like a resurrection in the sense of, you know, they left Ghana to do exactly what they needed to do to come to Europe. And now their child has come back to Ghana and I'm doing what I feel like I need to do. And it's almost a, a resurrection of the family and and what we're doing. So so that's the name. <laughs> nice. I love it. I love it. So Kojo, any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience before we go? Yeah, I think my final thought is that the universe rewards calculated risks. And I would really encourage everybody to take calculated risks and and do what exactly they feel that they need to. And I'm not so sure one will ever be on their deathbed regretting the calculated risks that they took, but probably the risks they didn't. So, I, and that's something at least I'm going to try and live by. I'm pretty young, but let's see what happens. Mm, okay. I like it. no regrets that's a good way to live life yeah exactly all right folks you've been listening to another episode of the podcast you can catch us tuesdays with new episodes at glocalcitizenspod.com or wherever you get your podcasts unfortunately not on stitcher for long I don't know if many of you are listening on Stitcher, but you you know that there is, I guess, 15 year life of Stitcher has come to an end. So it is no more. It will be no more as of August. But you can catch us in the other places. Google, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. It helps other people find good content on the Internet. And until next time, bye for now. <laughs>